You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is your host, Stephen Roach. This is season 10, episode six. Before we get into today's show, I have the privilege of announcing the third annual Bright Wings Poetry Contest, conducted in partnership with Ecstasis Magazine. If you're a poet and would like the opportunity for your work to be featured in an episode of this podcast, as well as in a publication of Ecstasis Magazine, see the show notes of this episode for details on how to enter. Malcolm Geit is an English poet, academic, and priest in the Church of England. He is a fellow of Girton College in the University of Cambridge and is published widely in the field of theology and literature. His research interests include the intersection of religion and the arts and the examination of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, and Samuel Taylor Coleridge. In this episode, Malcolm and I discuss what I've termed as the poetics of restoration and how poetry and literature hold keys to understanding, even bridging the gaps between tradition and originality. Patrons of the podcast can enjoy three additional interview segments with Malcolm, one on the moral imagination, which members of our creative collective will recall from discussions in our last book club. Also, Malcolm's thoughts on imagination as empathy and practices to establish longevity for the artist and writer. Thank you so much for listening. This is The Poetics of Restoration with poet Malcolm Guide. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm glad we've finally managed to make this happen after all the various vicissitudes <laughs> we have overcome. It only took a worldwide pandemic, a couple of lockdowns, and a few years to get us to the table here. I wondered why those had happened, and now I know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, a lot of our listeners would know that we just finished going through your book, Lifting the Veil, Imagination and the Kingdom of God. And so I'm excited to talk with you some from this book, talk with you about your poetry, and then hit on some of this season's theme as well of restoration for the heart of the artist. And uh, just looking forward to hearing your thoughts on all those well, that's things. That's great. I mean, rest- restoration is is such an important word. Because it's kind of the opposite, isn't it, of condemnation and write-off and, if you like, cancel as well. You know, uh-huh. there's all that about, you know, as though there's nothing redeemable. I mean, redemption and restoration are very, very linked things. I mean, even at the physical level, it's interesting, there's a sort of, there's quite a popular TV show on in England at the moment called The Repair Shack. <laughs> which simply consists of people taking broken family heirlooms and things or old toys, or I mean, not necessarily items of great value, but things of sentimental value, taking them in and a group of experts restoring them to better than new. And it's marvellously countercultural. It's the exact, I mean, we live in such a sort of, you know, uh, I think Neil Young used to talk about big bands by which he meant that you know like a big pen you just throw it use it and throw it away and he felt the music industry was just churning through ardent young musicians and then trashing them and they were big bands and there's a whole big culture you know the the one use throw away and people i think it's now infected the way people see other people 
That's right. That they take human beings as one use and throw them away. Mm-hmm. Now, restoration, <laughs> whether it's the restoration of a broken train toy or the restoration of a broken person, <laughs> is a massively different and far better project. Yes. And it's it seems to be a pretty countercultural project in, in light of what you were just saying. Well, obviously, know? that use and dispose was driven entirely by... By, I won't go so far as to say the industrial military complex, but I, it's about consumerism, isn't it? Capitalism thrives on selling things. And obviously, the more things are thrown away, the more things you can sell. I mean, the real scandal at the moment is the phones. The mm. fact that it's incredibly delicate, glorious, beautifully made piece of technology with all these rare earths and minerals in it, which you think would be a family heirloom for generations to have such a thing, mm-hmm. a palatier, a seeing stone, and you just use it, abuse it, and fling it away, and then the rare earths, you know, melt. And <laughs> they're just starting a project again here in England where they're really trying to encourage people to recycle their phones, you know. So it is, yeah, to restore, to repair, to restore, to reuse anything is fundamentally countercultural. Mm-hmm. I mean, may even, dare we say it, be anti-capitalist, who knows? Except, obviously, you can then found a firm that does the recycling, so you'll be all right there. Yeah, that's right. Well, you make me think of the found object artist, and I'm thinking, of course, of what is the artist's role in cultural restoration, and that's a fascinating question for me. And you know, I being down here in the South, in North Carolina, over here in the states, we have a lot of found object artists in this region, and and of course, well, that's very good. I mean, the the French started that didn't with the the objet trouvé, they call oh, it. Yes. And, oh and yes, oh yes, the idea of of bricolage that that you you could make something new out of the fragments of the old. I mean, that was part of a modernist poetry going right back. I mean, in a sense, when Eliot says at the beginning of The Wasteland, these fragments I have shored against my ruin. Mm. That's the beginning of that, really. But I have to say, we sometimes make a cult of the broken, and there's nothing wrong with an artist making a beautiful new thing out of new things. Though there's another sense, obviously, even if you make a completely new and beautiful poem or painting, which is not made up out of found objects. It is nevertheless made up out of a tradition that you've received. The very mm-hmm. idea of using paint and mixing color, the very idea of the, all the words we use have already been around for a while. I mean, in fact, in thinking about my own role as a poet, you know, it seems how does one have the temerity to take this great and ancient word poet and attach it to one's own name? I mean, it seems, you know, um, an extraordinary presumption mm-hmm. and the only thing that allows me to do it really is the conviction that that all the words i use are older and wiser than i am that each of them is also a found thing they i they I inherit them they carry a wisdom which i'm not fully conscious of but sometimes when i place them in a certain order a kind of semantic energy and energy of meaning is released from them precisely by their proximity to one another and i'm just listening for what they have to say Mm -hmm. and trying to order them in such a way that their energies can be released 
in a directed and beneficent way towards the reader. That reminds me of something Thomas Merton said in his book, Bread in the Wilderness, if you're familiar with that writing, but he talks about the reactivity between words that the meaning of poetry is not so much the same as a piece of scientific prose, but the meaning of a poem is kind of that reactive energy that's released through putting particular words together. Well, I think one of the things that's really helpful one can borrow from science. I mean, obviously the term reactive energy is borrowed from science. But if you think about feel, if you, I don't know if you ever remember that um, that experiment one used to do in sort of junior science, where you put a bar magnet under a piece of paper and you scattered, you scattered little iron filings on the paper. Then you put the bar magnet underneath and the iron filings rearrange themselves into these extraordinary lines going from pole to pole, which indicate the force, the force is there, but you never would have known it. And the other thing you did with bar magnets was that if you put them together one way, they rushed together and clicked. And if you turn them around or turn one of them around, they didn't want to join. And as you pushed them together, you could feel that pulse. Do you remember that? Did you ever do that as a kid? <laughs> in the science oh, yes. <laughs> okay. So I feel that way about words, almost that every word is a like a bar magnet with its own polar opposites of itself and its own field of, but the field is not electromagnetism, but meaning. And that you, I, you can arrange them and then the pattern. I mean, so, let, I mean, and it can be done in different ways. Think about the two, the two um, magnets that don't want to go together, but as you push them together, there's this quivering something, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, think of how Shakespeare does this. There's an amazing moment. I think it's in Henry the fourth part one where, um, Henry the Fourth is trying to tell his son about the need for stable government and the terror, the, the appalling circumstances of of civil war, because they're just recovering from the Wars of the Roses. And he says something words to this effect. He said that he remembers when the flowerish flower of English chivalry he said met together in furious close of civil butchery. <laughs> now, as a description of that. Now, look, think about those. Those four, five words, furious close of civil butchery. First of all, he compels the word civil and the word butchery to sit together in that line forever, undoing one another. Because it, how can butchery be civil? But actually, if it were civil, if it were a civil butchery, it's all the worst, the, the, you know, the fraternal <laughs> thing. And then you get these words, furious close. I mean, the closeness, you know, fury repels, and yet there's a closeness. Now, that describes the paradox, the absolutely appalling, utter inward pain of internecine strife, whether it's on the full level of a civil war or whether it's what's happening in both your country and mine, mm -hmm. where those who are close to each other are furious with one another, mm -hmm. and where there is the language and rhetoric of butchery within the Kiwis. Within the city, with the city, the the polis, the, you know, <laughs> the, the the community. So Shakespeare knew perfectly. You know, if Shakespeare had had certain kind of English grade school teacher now and said that, they would have said, "Oh, you can't put those two words together because they mean the opposite." And Shakespeare would have said, "I rest my case. That's exactly <laughs> why I put them together." So that's an example. That's an extreme example. But there are lots of ways in which one word perhaps not in opposition but in 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 sympathy draws out something more from mm -hmm. another word mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. that would have never been there if the artist hadn't had the skill to put them together. That reminds me of one of the threads that we're talking about this season in this conversation on restoration. And what it is, is learning the relationship between polarities or building bridges mm, yeah. between two opposing forces. It's really what, what you just said is a beautiful metaphor for that. And the role of the artist in and how the artist often inhabits that space between polarities. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, I mean, you know, I think... One of the physicists, it was Niels Bohr, I think, had a had a motto: "Contrarius and complementa." Contraries are complementary, and there is yeah. I mean, obviously, there are things that are genuinely opposed to each other, but often there's some sort of common common thread. I mean, Shake Coleridge thought, thought so much about this. He came up with a thing which he called polar logic, and he was really trying to think about about the way those polarities work. I mean, you again. I mean, I'm a poet, so I naturally look to words. There are certain English words which are in themselves, which contain within themselves polar opposites. So, for example, if you take the word cleave, I mean, the old translation of Scripture said, a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife. That means cleave together, right? But what is a cleaver? A cleaver is a thing that chops things apart. And if you cleave a piece of wood, you split it open. Yet if a couple cleave, they cleave together. And curiously in English, the word cleave contains the word leave. And it's as though the, the letter C is trying to hold together. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely. It's just one of those words where you think, yeah, but there is an experience of ambivalence in cleaving unto your wife. Indeed, you know, there is a... There is a recognition of the opposites and then they're coming together because they're opposites. All of those things <laughs> yes. are going on. And the, you need words that are ambivalent. So I don't know if you know the distinction between the two words ambiguous and ambivalent. So an ambiguous word is simply, you're not clear. It's not, it's, it's confusing. It's not clear what it means. It could mean one thing or it could mean another thing. There's a place for ambiguity and politicians use it all the time. <laughs> I mean, we are in an absolute financial meltdown and our government has completely tanked and crashed the economy. They use the rather ambiguous term, we are dealing with economic issues. <laughs> way around it. So there's a place for ambiguity, but it's often a deceptive place. But there's a different word, which is ambivalent. The valent bit is to do with an ambivalent word is a word which at the same time means two distinct things for a reason because those the negotiation between those two distinct things is precisely what the word is about yes that's very interesting it reminds me of uh, the word original which i've talked about this some before but in the word original it has those two polar meanings. Like for instance, if someone's an original member of the cast, it means he or she was there from the beginning of the production. But then you might say, if someone has an original work of art, it means it's new and innovative and it hasn't exactly. been done That's before. That's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. And origin of course is to do with, the reason why is to do with the nature of beginning and source. I mean, there's an old phrase, the funds at origo, the fountain and origin of something. And so, a person is original because they were at the origin of the project. And they're also original because they are originating something completely new. Mm -hmm. So that simply poses the question as where does originality come from? I mean, the, the essay, I mean, it was written back in um, 
1919, but it, to, my, to me, it's as sharp as a pin still today. The essay that deals with that very question of originality and tradition and how they're both compassed is an essay by T.S. Eliot called Tradition and the Individual Talent. Mm. which is exactly about how do you live out of tradition and learn from it and yet do something individual and original. Yes. I would recommend that essay to anybody that's thinking about where, what they do, how what they do is given by and yet also departs from, cleaves, if you like, to and cleaves away from the tradition. Brilliant. So as a poet and a writer, how would you say that tradition and innovation or tradition and your own sense of individuality, how do those things communicate in your life and in your art? Okay, well, I would probably be regarded as traditional in the sense that I'm somebody who has chosen to use traditional forms. So if I'm known for anything, I'm known for, in some sense, trying to revive and reinvigorate the sonnet. But those words revive and reinvigorate are very important. I mean, when I started to write poetry as a teenager, I started off as a kind of Keats wannabe, and then I became a Spencer wannabe, and then I became a Jared Manley Hopkins wannabe, because it's like you're sitting at the back of their gig playing air guitar, you know, you're trying to figure out what they did, and you want to learn, learn how to do that. So you don't have an original voice in that sense, but what you're doing is, as the musicians should say, you're learning your chops, you know, you're figuring out what the scales are. Eventually, you will have your voice, but you have to begin somewhere. But there was a point when I first writing sonnets, where it was like, I was kind of like saying, let's party like it's 1599. You know, <laughs> I, I I was like, I was, it was full of quaths and doths and prithies. And do you know what I mean? It was, it was fake in that mm. sense. It, I was like one of those very clever painters that can fake a Dutch master. Mm -hmm. And that is not art. It's skill it involves very finessed technique, but it has absolutely nothing to say. Mm -hmm. However, you have to imagine that if you had all that finesse and technique, what if you then said, oh, wait a minute, it's 2022, not, not 1599. You know, one of the most important things I had to do as an artist, and this came late in my development, I had a long apprenticeship. It takes a lot of time to learn how to write a sonnet well so it doesn't seem like an effort. Those, that particular set of chops, if you like, you know, I had an, an apprenticeship of a long time before I felt I could do it sufficiently fluently that I could say something new with it, you know? Mm -hmm. But the most important thing was to set myself free from the persistent self-myth that I'd made up for myself when I was a young man, that I was born in the wrong age, right? I was just so much a Keats, Shelley, Byron wannabe as a, I, I tried to live the lifestyle as well. You know, I, I didn't, I couldn't necessarily afford to be, you know, I really was like a romantic poet born out of time. And then when I got more serious about faith and Christianity, I thought, oh no, I'm a metaphysical poet born out of time. I should have been John Donne or George Herbert. Now that was very useful for sitting at those guys' feet and learning how to do it, but it produced nothing I went back to an origin of the sonnet that I produced nothing original. It was only when much later I sort of woke up to myself and said, I was really very helpful moment. I was rereading C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Screwtape Letters. And I think it's the 14th letter. There's a fantastic letter about time and about how 
the, the, the devil, if you like, has to tempt the person away from the present moment because the nearer the present moment is utterly real and the nearer they get to any kind of reality, whether it's the reality of a good pint or the reality of a breath, <laughs> they're nearer to God. The more they live in some kind of abstracted fantasy, the further away they are from God. Wow. So the devil's always trying to get you away from what is actually the case. So they said, well, with scholars and romantics, you tempt them with the past, keep pushing them into the past. And if they're of the more progressive, you know, libertarian type, push them into the future, make them sacrifice any decency or common courtesy or even their own children now for the sake of this utopian future that they're living towards. Why? Says, says the devil, because the past is frozen and no longer fro flows. And the future is unreal because it hasn't happened. But, and this is a direct quote from the letter, it pierced me through when I read, but the present is all lit up with golden rays. The present is the point at which time touches eternity. Mm. So, I mean, that's incredibly true in lots of ways, but it made me think, hey, you know, I may despise or I may, I may, no, despise is too strong a word. I may feel that contemporary poetic mores of fragmented free verse and so-called self-expression are likely to lead to embarrassing drivel. But that doesn't mean that I shouldn't be contemporary. Just because I don't like the style of contemporary poetry and I like the style and form of the poetry past ages, I'm no good if I just keep transporting myself back in some kind of literary TARDIS and hanging out with those guys. I have to be where I am. So a key poem, which is actually in the, my second book of The Singing Bowl, is the title poem has the line, begin the song exactly where you are. Mm. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in the earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. You know? Oh, so, 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 so that doesn't mean... Then suddenly, all that stuff I learned from Dunn and Herbert and Shakespeare and then later from Keats and Shirley, all that stuff becomes available to me to say something contemporary with. Whereas previously, it was just, I was just having this kind of nostalgic romance with the past. Mm. So talking about restoration, I mean, what I feel I'm doing now is there might have been a, something wrong spiritually with my my love affair with the past, you know, just as there may be something wrong spiritually with various love affairs. But actually, it doesn't mean that there isn't love and it doesn't mean that there's not something beautiful going on, which can be redeemed. So now I feel when I'm trying to write as a contemporary poet, that all that stuff from my love affair with the poets of the past is now, I hope in some maturity and presence available to me as range, as technique, as illusion, all of those things. Now, I'm sure I not, can't be the only person here who, as a contemporary artist in whatever art form, has found the over-the-top, you know, the kind of post-romantic and now modern and now post-modern cult of the artist as the lonely, peculiar genius saying their weird things to nobody. And because it's difficult, the rest of us have got to pretend to understand it and call it art. <laughs> when you know perfectly well that it's not art, but there's a kind of convention. I know there are lots of real artists who actually know how to paint and know how to sculpt and who don't want to do that. 
but then feel that they're they're left out. They're not part of that scene. But and who therefore look back to the great masters and say, I'm going to learn from Van Gogh, you know, I'm going to learn from Matisse. So, so those people need to know that that learning is all to the good, but you're not that person and you're not living in that age. You, God has set you for reasons that he knows better than you do and given you the gifts you have for you to articulate this appalling moment in which your country is being pulled apart from the inside by invisible webs and threads from a cyber world that doesn't even exist, and yet which is cracking open the fabric of your actual community. Now, what are you going to say to that? And how are you going to speak to that? And how are you going to step into those breaches and find the holy ground, which is common ground? How are you going to make a culture that people on both sides can share? Mm -hmm. Now you know why you fell in love with all those past artists, because mm -hmm. they're going to give you the power to do that thing now. But mm -hmm. it has to be now. Yes. So you can draw from the past and you can, you can even see prophetically, I guess, of a vision for the future, but it must be lived out and implemented in the yeah, moment. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The point about prophecy is not idle speculation about what will happen, but insight and hope about what to do now you know the long prophetic arc of the scripture from the garden and the trees and the loss and yet that was a place from which all the rivers flow to a place where there is another river and the leaves are there the trees are there and the leaves are for the healing of the nations but this river is not now some primitive garden of origin it's the city of god it's flowing through it's it's the mature community and the journey the long arc is from the garden to the city you know and from the from the couple to the community mm -hmm. We, and the point about that vision is not to say, hey, I'm always just going to live from there, but to say, that is the journey you're on. That is the destination. Now, as it happens, you've just been thrown by your brothers into a deep, dark hole and sold into slavery, which you might think is just deep shit. Why should I even, you know, like, <laughs> there's just, funnily enough, turns out God is sending you into Egypt to change this stuff. You know, you're Joseph in that moment. You need that story. So we are always somewhere in between the garden and the city. But the great thing is that we do have the vision of the city of God. You know, when St. Augustine, that great theologian, wrote, I mean, everybody reads the Confessions because it's a wonderful work. Fewer people read the city of God. But the, the I mean, if you don't read the city of God, the thing to know about the city of God is that he wrote it in the immediate aftermath of the cataclysmic 9-11 style event, which was the fall of Rome. Rome called herself the Eternal City, and she finally falls in what is about 410 to the Goths and the Ostrogoths. St. Augustine doesn't go, well, that's done history. He writes the city of God and says, you've got a dual citizenship. You've got this other city. And the light of the values of this other city will guide you while you're living in the temporary city. You know, mm -hmm. you'll apply that eschatological hope to practical action now. I love that phrase too, between the garden and the city. That's such a beautiful phrase. A city is, is itself a kind of garden city, isn't it? Because there are the trees and the leaves. Mm -hmm. But you know, there are also the walls and the towers. And, you know, that there's a place for nature in that city, but there's also a place for what we build. 
And revelation, insofar as it gives you any description, of course, it's all entirely symbolic. You know, we're, we're talking entirely in metaphorical language here. But the metaphor, let it be seen, is of artistry. The stones, you know, the gates of onyx. That, do you know what I mean? That, mm -hmm. That's all stuff that craftsmen and artists have made. Mm -hmm. And this is a difference, I think, you know, um, I don't know if you went to the talk at Dieter 10 that uh, Judith Wolf and I did about eschatology in, in Lewis and Tolkien. Anyway, I mean, we were talking about, they both have visions of the soul's journey and paradise. And I, in a way, Lewis's is slightly more pessimistic. You may remember in The Great Divorce, mm -hmm. the artist who comes up, you know, from the suburbs of Helen goes, oh, wow, I've got to paint this. And the other artist, who's really one of the safe, says, no, no, you've got to look at it. And he says, no, 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 I, I you know, I've got to make it mine. He said, no, 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 you're right, you know. So Lewis is questioning. He's He wants to write about the self-serving vanity of artists and wants them to be, to set their paintbrush aside in light of the utterly divine. And that's totally understandable. But you get Tolkien, a slightly more optimistic view of the arts, saying, I beg to differ. And in Tolkien's similar parable tale, Leaf by Niggle, Niggle, who's the artist who never manages to finish anything, but he finally gets one leaf really good, and then ends up giving, yes, he, he, was, um, he gives his aunt away to roof his neighbor's house. But when he comes to the edges of paradise, to where purgatory is fading into paradise, it's exactly the same subject as Lewis's book. There's a moment of just heartbreaking joy when he sees the tree that he had imagined with his leaf exactly as he achieved it, but everything else there. And he realizes that tree in all its beauty, even in God's vision, would never have been standing there had it not been for his sub-creation, as Tolkien would say. Mm -hmm. And that there was a proper role, even in paradise, even beyond the, for the artist's utterly joyful exfoliation, as it were, the kind of unleafing and unfolding of God's originally proposed theme. And then, of course, it turns out in that story that the thing that Lee Niggle had found beautiful enough to want to paint turns out to be incredibly healing for other people. And their place, the combination of himself and his neighbor, Mr. Parrish, Mr. Niggle, gets, is a, becomes a railway stop called Niggle's Parish, where their art has this healing. For, so talking, I think, had a slightly more optimistic view mm -hmm. of the final efficacy and place in God's providence yes. of our work. And I have to say, I lean with talking there rather than with Lewis, much as I love Lewis. <laughs> I understand Lewis's stricture. Because you remember the the artist in Lewis says, "Oh my God, my reputation! I have to go back and defend my reputation. You know, I have to, I have to arrange. You know, the the, the other side mustn't win. You know, he he's in completely involved in these bitter internecine artistic wars about <laughs> isms, mm -hmm. and he refuses heaven for the sake of his isms. Wow, that's a danger for every artist, oh, even yeah. for dare I say it as a formalist poet." <laughs> <laughs> You know, some of what you were saying made me think about the relationship between the intimate and the infinite or the personal and the universal and how even with your example of Tolkien and uh, the leaf, it was like this individual leaf on an individual tree, a particular tree, but it ended up speaking 
on a universal level. And I think in some ways that is the work of the poet and that is the work of the artist. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right at the core. I mean, just to speak about poetry itself, I mean, this is something which if your your folk have been reading the um, Lifting the Veil book, you know I make something of. I mean, but it's a core thing for me. Shakespeare's account of poetry is not an account of flight from the particular and increasing universalist abstraction. It's a journey in precisely the opposite direction. You remember the famous passage in Midsummer Night's Dream where he says, the poet's eye in a fine frenzy rolling doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the form of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. So the great thing is the juxtaposition of the words imagination and bodies. We would split those words apart. This is exactly what I was talking about. It's another example of that, that polarity, that field of semantic energy, that power of a word being released by its juxtaposition with another. You know, if I took a group of people in a lecture hall and divided them as some lecturers, I'm sorry to say, embarrassingly do, I would never actually do this. But if I did that thing where, okay, all of you people, I want you to word storm on brain buzz or whatever the phrase is about the word imagination. And I want you people to do bodies. And I want you to get into little groups and I want somebody to report back. It's cringeworthy. But anyway, if I did that, which I would never do, you can be pretty sure that all the people who got imagination would be talking about vague, diaphanous, airy, fairy things and rainbows and, and unicorns and, you know, <laughs> and over there, there, you know, one half of the body's people would be caught talking about rippling muscles and glistening oil on perfectly tanned skins and, <laughs> and the other ones would be talking about hawking and spitting and sweat and blood and, you know, constipation you know what i mean they'd be there but they would do you know what i mean that there would be no point where you know they would they're utterly separate realms of discourse and what does what does poetry do what does art do it takes all of that and then the poet bodies it forth the sculptor bodies it forth the painter bodies it forth it has to be this particular thing and paradoxically by doing that the airy nothing, the thing that would have vanished, has a home. It has a local habitation. It has a name. You can walk into it. And one of the things that I realized, I mean, back in the day when I was writing my book, Faith, Open Poetry, is that this passage, which I always thought was just about poetry, and which I loved before I came back to Christianity as a purely poetic account of poetry, when I read it again, when the eye scales had fallen from my eyes as a Christian, I thought, oh my goodness, this is all about the incarnation. This is just simply a riff on the prologue to John's gospel, where you get in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the same was in the beginning. And it goes on like you think, well, this is really profound philosophy, but I haven't the faintest idea what it looks like. I mean, you know, I, I can't put a finger on that. You know, it's in the realm of apprehension. It's not come. And then you're going on like that for about 14 verses. And then suddenly you get this word, and the 14th, John 1, 14, you know, and the word was made flesh, bodied forth and dwelt among us. And, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, all that. But in a face, in a person. And God took all the infinite. It took about, in, in, I love your, your matching of infinity and intimacy. He took all the infinity and eternity of heaven and made it intimate mm -hmm. in this person. I mean, in one of my poems, I think it's, a, it's about Monday Thursday or, or John's Gospel, I say, 
No need to search of heaven's eye, the heaven's eye high above. The God of love is kneeling at your feet. You can look down and find him. Because how low soever you go, he sinks lower so that underneath are the everlasting arms. Now that's divine art. And of course, I'm glad your 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 podcast is called Mystics and Makers. Because, of course, the Scottish word for poet is makar, maker, and that's a direct version of the Greek. Because the Greek word poet comes from the Greek word poiein, to make. And when it says, in him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made, the word is poiein. In him everything was poeted, and without this poet there was no poem. Would be just as good a way of translating it. <laughs> That's so good. I love what you said, but no matter how low you go, he goes lower that the everlasting arms may be underneath you. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. Malcolm, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. This has been truly wonderful. Okay, it's been a great pleasure, and um, I, I, I wish you well in in all your endeavors and uh, you know i love just bringing the words makers and mystics together i think necessarily uh, all makers must be in some degree mystics even if not all mystics are makers absolutely thank you for listening to the makers and mystics podcast be sure to follow us on instagram at makers and mystics and join our creative collective at patreon.com slash makers and mystics Entries for the third annual Bright Wings Poetry Contest will open Wednesday, November 2nd. Details on how to enter are listed in the show notes of this episode. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Mm-hmm.